Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihe Razazan. Six months ago this week, Mahsa Jina Amini, a 22-year-old woman from the Kurdish region of Iran, died from injuries sustained in the custody of Iran's notorious morality police. During the funeral in her hometown of Saqiz, which was to become the epicenter of the nationwide protest in Iran, women took off their headscarves, chanting Women, Life, Freedom, Jen Jian Azadi, slogan which became an iconic chant both within Iran and beyond. Images of young women protesters openly taking off their headscarves and burning them send an unmistakable message to the ruling clerics that they could no longer impose their draconian and nonsensical laws on women and girls in Iran. Throughout the country, in the schools, universities, and streets, young people became the leaders of protest calling for an end to the Islamic Republic. But, as predicted, the brutality employed by the regime's security apparatus to suppress the protests at any cost took on epic proportions. Over 500 protesters have reportedly been killed so far, including 70 children. In addition to this, four protesters have been executed by the state, with many more also facing the death sentence. Hundreds of protesters were also blinded by metal pellets and rubber bullets. Furthermore, over the past six months, human rights organizations have documented the pervasive use of torture and abuse of detained protesters. A newly released report by Amnesty International, for example, reveals that the Iranian authorities have, among other torture methods, use sexual violence against imprisoned children. Professor Shahzad Mujab, who is our guest today, says that much of the push for the current protests has come from young people who are more aware than previous generations of women's issues thanks to social media. She emphasizes that these young people have their own powerful reasons for wanting a change of regime a desire for a better future. Shahzad Mujab is a professor of adult education and community development and women and gender studies at the University of Toronto. I spoke with her about the protest movement, the Islamization of the education system, as well as the role of young women in the protest. And I started by asking her to talk about the genesis of the slogan, Woman, Life, Freedom and how it encapsulates the spirit and objectives of the protests in Iran. Jin Jian Azadi is the, the Kurdish slogan of the Kurdish resistance movement, which started back of the late 1990s forward. And it is uh, related to the ideas of Abdullah Ocalan, the leader of the PKK movement in Turkey. The leader who is in prison currently, and the idea was that the relationship between ideas of freedom and democracy, that it is located and related to the freedom and liberation of women. This slogan has transformed greatly in the last two decades. 
and the transformation of it, which is deepening of that meaning, uh, of the meaning of Zhenji and Azadi, and the meaning of the liberation of women because of the continuous struggle of Kurdish women within the movement as well and beyond. There is a different history of it in the context of Roj Halat, the eastern part of Kurdistan, and which is the Iranian region of Kurdistan. And then that history is, is related to the movement of related to, but it also different, the movement of Pejak. And in the last two decades in Iran, a lot of young Kurdish intellectuals, human rights activists, and environmental activists especially, really took up the idea of a dreaming and desiring different world, and especially fighting back the oppressive and exploitative regime, the Islamic regime in Iran. A lot of activists and uh, sympathizers of Pejak were among the ones that were imprisoned, and the two very high-profile cases, Farzad Kamangar, a very well-known and beloved teacher and, and human rights activist and a journalist, and Shirin Alamholi, they were both executed on May 9th, 2000, 2009, because of their being a sympathizer of Peshak. And there are anecdotes that Shirin Alamholi actually wrote Zhenji on Azadi on the walls of prison. Then uh, later on, currently actually, the Zainab Jalalian, who is the longest serving political prisoner in Iran, is also a sympathizer of Pejak. So we can go on and on and, and name many of the Kurdish political prisoners that were sympathizers and, and, and were also fighting for the rights of the Kurd and, and against the Islamic regime. However, in the last few months, there is another leap forward of this slogan, by which I mean that the courageous act of Jina Mahsa Amini's family to make the atrocities of the Islamic regime public in, in killing their daughter, and also the fact that this was her burial took place in the city of Saqqaz, in the Kurdish region of Iran. And immediately that a slogan became the echo of the voices of Kurdish people against their oppression, but also ignited the grievances of people across the country in, in terms of the suppression that they have tolerated under this uh, Islamic regime. And since then, as you know, this slogan has gone through many different interpretation and analysis and with it different political strategies have been formed to the extent that I'm of the opinion right now that we need to take it back in, in fact, in the sense that the slogan and its political ethos have been appropriated by the right-wing political analysis and strategies, and it needs to be reappropriated and reinterpreted and developed deeper that what does it mean for the future of Iran and for the transition from the Islamic regime to the ideas of democracy, freedom, 
You referred to PEJAK, which is the acronym for the Party for Free Life in Kurdistan, a Kurdish leftist organization in Iran. So when you say it has been appropriated by the right, can you elaborate on that? In what way? We can go through every concept in this slogan and and really understand that what is the the actual dream, desire, request, demand of people of Iran and especially women and the youth in the notion of who is this woman? And so we need to define it. This woman is a member of, of the LGBTQ plus communities. This woman is a working class person. This woman is a member of the oppressed nationalities, a Kurd, Baluch, Turk, and Arab women. And therefore, this, if we have this expansive understanding that who is this woman, then we have a different understanding of the meaning of, of life. And the life, it means that the, the notion of the relationship between all of us to the nature. So it has environmental implications. Mm. It means about peace. It means that the stopping of the intervention of, of this regime in, into the creation of the uh, militarized and the violence of war in the region. Freedom, it's a very important concept. It's a cherished concept in, in the his, long history of our people's struggle in the entire MENA region. Freedom mm-hmm. here in the context of Iran, it means that total separation of religion from the state. It means that the end to the oppressive relations to nationalities and the suppressing ideas and freedom of ideas end to execution end to the, the torture, and end to this level of political uh, suppression that people of Iran has tolerated in the last 44 years. So you can see that it has political, economic, social, cultural implications. So when we put all of that in together, the next question is that there will be two issues here. One is that how to bring change to the current sort of political structure in Iran. The second one is that what to replace it with. So you can see that this beautiful, meaningful slogan will take us in into very layered, complex areas of not only change, but also what is the vision for the country after that. And and therefore, any kind of what I call, and you asked about the right wing, it means that the right wing strategy means that really leaving many aspects of what I delineated here untouched, and therefore to give us in the political history of Iran to replace one government with another one, maybe this time a secular, but also not totally change the structure of power and the ruling relations in order to deeply address the desire and the demands of people of Iran, especially led by women and youth. This slogan is so transformative. This slogan has put women in Iran 
at the center of the struggle, but at the same time, it has provided the potential and the capacity for the women's movement to link to other movements for social and economic justice. I really think that this is a very important point. You know that they, especially women in Iran, they have not stopped since the coming into power of, of the Islamist forces in Iran to voice their grievances and, and protest against the compulsory veiling, against the control and, and, and disciplining of this regime on women's bodies and sexualities. However, it is the last few months and this Gina's uprising that has opened up many other areas of life and politics in Iran in in order to be discussed openly. And I think that this is a huge achievement in terms of the kind of conversations that are happening, the kinds of critique and, and writings that it is going on, the explosion of the artistic expression of all of this that it is happening. So this is very unique and different compared to many protests and uprisings in the last 43 years, even if we look at it post-2009, the well-known green movement in Iran. There is something about this uprising that it is substantially different in its political, cultural expression, and the demands that it is putting forward. And therefore, it is very unique. So let's continue about what's going on in Iran before we go back to the beginning of why we are here today. The regime's brutal attack and crackdown of the protests led to tens of thousands of arrests. No one knows the exact number, but there are even figures as high as 80,000. Over 500 protesters were killed, hundreds blinded, and the executions have not stopped, unfortunately. The protest movement, it has shaken the regime to its core and has also garnered worldwide attention. By the anti-government street demonstrations have shrunk for the past couple of months. How do you assess the present state of the protest in Iran? I know it's a very difficult question, but where do you think we are today? It's a difficult question because of many different reasons that one can talk about. And, and it is actually, I'm not surprised by it. This is part of the logic of fighting a brutal authoritarian regime. And Islamic regime is, is using different mechanisms of fear and threat and intimidation. They're using biochemical attack on high school students. Exactly, this should be seen as a revenge of the young high school and school girls that came out, which is very unique in terms of the resistance movement in, in the last 40 years, that they joined the movement. And they were very active, loud, and courageous voice of this movement. I think that, of course, the level of the brutality that the regime is, is using, different techniques that they are using, is exactly for pushing back and creating the condition of threat and intimidation in order to stop the protest. However, I am amazed still that people come out and express their anger and frustration 
in many different ways, from, you know, writing zone on the walls, organizing in different neighborhoods and shouting from their apartments, slogans of down with the leader and down with dictatorship and such slogans. Also, spontaneous act of defiance. These are all very important. I would argue that one of the characteristics of this movement is very much based on network building from grounds up. I disagree with the notions that it is totally spontaneous and leaderless. I think that within that spontaneity, there is an organization. And especially I know that the Kurdish region and the practice, the historical practice, of what is called benkes, which is the councils and the city councils, youth councils, mm. and teachers, and all of that is happening. I think that this level of the protest cannot be heinous and leaderless. But I think that we need to rethink how people organize in today's world using social media and this massive attack on, on social media, limiting the internet connections. And so the, the government is, is also using its power and control of social media as a medium of suppression. So I think that what we are facing, it's a huge war. And it's a face-to-face -face war. The war up on the one side are our people of Iran led by women and the youth. And then on the other side is a highly authoritative, militarized state that it is fighting these people. And definitely it's very unequal power that there will be moments of people moving forward and, and then they have to retreat. This is how it's going to go on. The question for us is that how to support and how to make sure that this level of brutality will be controlled so that people are not killed and arrested with thousands and thousands, as you mentioned, or high school students are not suffering from this level of the poisonous chemical attack that they are facing. It's an equal, unjust, brutal war that it is going on. Just want to also mention, um, as an example of the bravery of Iranian women, the news today was that Sepide Rolian, a student and a, and a labor journalist, uh, she was released after four years and seven months in prison. And as she got out of Evin prison, she started shouting against Khomeini outside of the prison walls just moments after she was released. It's incredible to see this. She was chanting, we will bring you down, you bloodthirsty Khamenei. We will bring you down, you bloodthirsty Khamenei. <laughs> I mean, she was chanting this moments after she was released. That image and that shouting brought tears to my eyes. First of all, her incredibly colorful outfit yes. and, and with a bouquet of, of flowers. 
she followed many other political prisoners that were released recently, that they came out and then immediately took off their veil and shouted the slogans related to freedom and democracy and all of that. It is really incredible to watch this and not to be shaken deeply by the level of the courage that these women show. And of course, I think that this is actually what the regime is fearful of. And, and that's why that there are a lot of other political prisoners that have not been released. And the strategy of the regime is that not to release those that will have the potential to organize and mobilize. Sepida Kolyan is one of those brave souls. And it's incredible that video, that short few seconds, tells you a lot of the potential of this movement. Regardless of what we call this moment, this movement, there is one undeniable fact that there is definitely a social and cultural revolution underway in Iran, which was sparked by the tragic killing of Masojina Amini. You um, alluded to the chemical attacks. I just want to give a little bit of a context. The first case appeared in Qom, 80 miles southwest of Iran's capital, Tehran. And then soon after, we start seeing a spike in the chemical attack on girls' schools all over the country, more than 2,000 students in 230 schools across 25 provinces were poisoned. And according to the health ministry, some 11,000 girls fell ill because they inhaled the unknown toxic gas. There have been questions of why this happened and who did it. You called it a revenge attack. Let me respond to this question by just following up on our previous conversation that one thing that it is important in, in terms of understanding what is happening in Iran right now, I really think that the mark of this movement on Iranian history is that we will, in the annals of, of the history of uh, struggle in Iran, we will have pre-Jina's uh, uprising post Jina's uprising in mm -hmm. Iran, when, mm -hmm. when we will be talking about it. That's how significant is this movement. Yes. I call this chemical attack on high school students a revenge, first as a revenge. Revenge really in, in terms of girls being attacked uh, because they played a major role immediately following the death of Jina Amini. And second, because of their act of defiance, which was taking off their veils, showing up their beautiful hairs, and demanding change within the school system, and chanting songs and dancing on the street that excited a lot of other people to join them. Second, I would say that it is a very targeted and strategic plan for the government First, it was argued that it is another version of Taliban or a Daesh is doing it in Iran, which I think that that's the strategy of creating more fear and division within the country. And also it's a strategy for parents to move their girls out of school in order to stop any kind of further protest. And especially that it happened a few months before March the 8th. So I think that it has multiple meaning and messaging 
that the government was doing here. But I really think that people read through it because it originally started with some kind of a mysterious poisoning, food poisoning and, and all of that. But people very immediately understood that this is not an individual act. This is not an accident of food poisoning or anything like that. It's a deliberate effort. And it was really illuminating that people said, how is it possible that in thousands and thousands of protests, you are capable, that is the government, is capable to use and scan social media and confiscate phones and and immediately do facial recognition, arrest people, even identify where they are, who they are. And when schools after schools are being attacked and poisoned and all of this that it is happening with all the security cameras that are installed in, in different places, they cannot find what is happening and and what is going on. So people's sensitivity and awareness of the brutality of this regime exposes them. And therefore, I think that uh, right now you can see the farcical arrest of some culprit in in all of this that the government is doing is firing back on, on, on their face. People do not accept their explanation. And especially courtesy of China, Iran has one of the most sophisticated surveillance and facial recognition technologies in the world. Absolutely. Yes, you're absolutely right. Young men and women have been the drivers of this movement. We saw female high school students joining the protest in early days of the protest by moving their headscarves, confronting officials on school grounds, ripping up the pictures of Ayatollah Khamenei, the founder of the Islamic Republic, as well as the pictures of the current Supreme Leader Khamenei from their books. Tens of young people were also killed during the protest. And one of the slogans that we still hear is down with the child killer regime. How do you see the role played by the youth in Iran's protest movement now and moving forward What is their transformative potential and how it should be harnessed? What is incredible is that in a lot of studies, what we hear is is that the, the Middle East in total is a young region, by which it means that uh, throughout the, the region, more than 50% of the population are youth, which means that they are under 30 years of age. This is a huge potential population that needs the economic freedom, social freedom, cultural freedom, and the prosperity to live in prosperity and to have access to cultural rights, social rights, and economic rights as they are also exposed to this knowledge and they understand it. So overall, you can see that a country that has this level of highly educated young population with no vision for future, unemployment is high, poverty is high, and they don't see any hopes for future for them. And at the same time, 
Depression is very high. Suicide among the youth is high, and especially among women. And the violence that they face, because the violence that is organized, I would call it violence is deliberate. The state, the Islamic regime has the monopoly on, on the violence in, in the society. That level of violence that it is happening is, is also being projected in, into family relations, patriarchal relations in the society and oppression of nationality. So you can see that it is society bursting with anger and frustration. And, and therefore, we should not be surprised that the youth are uh, leading this movement. And this is the same in the other parts of the Middle East. During the Arab uprising, youth were also leading that movement. Mm-hmm. Tunisia, Women and youth were leading that movement. Sudan is also the same. We can see that this is a trans-regional characteristics of the social movements of our time. According to Yunusef Shahzad, by mid-century, 271 million children, adolescents and youth will live in the MENA region. Absolutely. And therefore, we are facing, when we have that social political conditioning in the region, it creates another level of complexity to it, which is migration and refugees. Mm. And, and not migration from the MENA region to the rest of the world, but within the region. You know, migrations of Afghans and Iranians and Syrians to Turkey or to United Arab Emirates, or different dispersing throughout different regions of the world. So yes, it is going back to what is the meaning of women life freedom. It means addressing all of these issues. It means that addressing deeply the question of poverty, economy, educational system, and and migration and refugees. It has all that components embedded in it. Today, I'm talking with Shahzad Mujab, Professor of Adult Education and Community Development and Women and Gender Studies at the University of Toronto, about the women-led protests in Iran and the Islamization of the education system. You are listening to Voices of the Middle East and North Africa on KPFA in Berkeley, KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. I am Malihe Razazan. We'll be back after a short break.
For those of you joining us, I am Malihera Zazan, and this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. If you have a show idea for us, or you want to give us a feedback, please drop us a line at vominaradio at gmail.com. Today, I'm speaking with Shahzad Mujab, Professor of Adult Education and Community Development and Women and Gender Studies at the University of Toronto about the women-led protest in Iran, as well as the Islamization of the education system. Focusing on education, and I want to talk to you about girls' education in specific in the aftermath of 1979 revolution, 44 years ago. And why education in K through 12 was so pivotal to the regime's Islamization project. What can you tell us about what happened to Iran's education system right after the revolution? And how quickly was the new regime able to overhaul the education system? There are two columns that extremely important in solidifying the political power of Islamists soon after the 1979 revolution. One of these columns is the compulsory veiling. And and the other one is what is known in Iran as the Islamic Cultural Revolution, which was the suppression and taking over first of the student movements and then the universities. There is a relationship here. The compulsory veiling was proclaimed in the 1980s. However, it did not turn into a law until 1983. Universities were attacked and they were closed down from, you know, 1980s, later 1980s to 1983. And 1983, when the universities were opened, then the veiling also became a law and the students had to return to universities following the rule of the veiling. That understanding that history is important because the government's cultural, political identity were rooted in controlling and disciplining women's bodies, were also rooted in creating what they call a revamping of the entire educational system, purging of teachers and students and faculty members and staff that they did not believe or follow fully and thoroughly the notion of Islam that was embedded in in the constitution. That is writing of the constitution that it is based on on Islamic Sharia law. Mm -hmm. And so that Islamization meant that the representation of gender relations, the representation of women as their role as a pious mother, and a pious citizen of the nation became fundamental. But I would argue that, and there is a lot of good research that has been done in terms of looking at the Islamization of educational textbooks, K-12, different textbooks that went through many revisions over the years. But I think that Islamization of the educational system in Iran was more than just the educational system. It was the creation of what the state conceived of a Muslim citizen, Mm -hmm. a Muslim gendered citizen. What does that mean in terms of the submission 
to the rule of the state. And the state is being represented of the shadow of the God on earth. And therefore, this notion that if you protest and if you disagree with the state and object the rule of the state, it means that you are rejecting and the rule of God. And therefore, it becomes a sort of a blasphemy in one sense. So this meant that both the compulsory veiling and Islamization became also the condition for creating suppression of ideas and taking away the possibilities of critical thinking and ability to challenge the truth, what is the truth, who is setting that truth, also challenge the the notion of science and scientific approach to inquiry, to knowledge, and therefore created and legalized the condition for censorship of ideas, and with it came the suppression of faculty members and teachers that were challenging what they were teaching, and therefore the entire educational system became very uh, scripted based on the notion of what a state imagined and articulated as who is a Muslim citizen. So you can see that the Islamization of educational system is beyond, is deeper than only revising the educational system from a secular textbooks to a Islamic-based ideas of knowledge and learning and teaching. Its social, cultural connotations is deeper than that. This project, they spend so much time and money on. Why do you think it failed so miserably that women, young women, women as young as 9, 10, 11 years old, are burning their headscarves and they're taking their headscarves off? The youth do not live in isolation. No matter how the states in different parts of the world and Islam, you know, especially the oppressive Islamic state, youth are, are globally connected. They know what is happening. They know what is the truth and, and they know what is the superstition and, and they don't accept uncritical way of looking at the world around them. Family relations, parents in Iran are talking about that we are bringing up children that are questioning us all the time. And they are questioning us actually more because they cannot question their teachers and outside world. This is quite illuminating in terms of understanding what the youth are facing in Iran. What the government did by this level of suppression of ideas and and freedom of knowing and knowledge and encouraging the creativity and inquisitive mind, what they did that they pushed it underground. They pushed it outside of a public sphere such as a school system or the streets or theaters and dance and performance into the private homes, private gatherings, and all of that for those youth, especially in urban areas that were able to have access to that type of alternative spaces. But this is what we have seen that it is happening in Iran. But also at the same time, we have episodes after episodes of protest and uprising. 
those moments are also very educative moments and very important moments in, in terms of raising awareness that there is something here that it is not right. Every episode of the protest increases the level of understanding and consciousness around injustice. And therefore, we are seeing that generation after generation is more daring and more aware of what is happening and what needs to happen and what needs to change. And in fact, we see that if we carefully create the chronology of the the veiling and and different laws and rules and regulations, we will see that the more women uh, disobey the rule of the veiling, the more government creates their apparatus of the suppression, layers after layers of different organizations, different structures, and add to the level of the security and then the security structure that they have. So that's why that they have a, a massive mechanisms, a state machinery of violence. So if we look at this state machinery of violence, you understand that this massive machinery, something must be happening in the society that the state needs to create this level of apparatus in in order to suppress its own uh, people. So I think that it's related to the fact that youth are aware of what is happening around them. They know that the wars that are going on in the region is unjust. They know that the treatment of of refugees, Afghan refugees in, in their homes and communities and societies is not right. They understand that their sisters do not have the same right and opportunities as uh, they do. They see it. They know it. And that's why that they fire back. They revolt. That's exactly what it is. It's a revolt. Talking about machinery of violence, in, uh, in a recent interview, you argued that the schools in Iran have not only been a space for ideological indoctrination, but they have also been securitized. Can you talk about that? The securitization that I'm I'm talking about here, it means that the school system is also have the layers of acceptance for the quota and, and the families that they are pro-government. In other words, the students who come from the families that are financially and politically supported by the different government uh, structures, they also become the police and eyes and ears of the state in the school system. Mm -hmm. Teachers talk about the fact that they cannot challenge the textbooks. Or if a student asks a challenging questions, they have to be very careful in, in, in the way that they respond because they will be reported. The principals of our schools are also elected through a process of their loyalties to the state. And therefore, a school system that is run by a principal that has the total loyalty to the state, it has less potential and ability to be creative and do things differently. So it is at that level that you can see that the securitization through the process of spying, reporting that has been created 
uh, within the school system. And, and then, you know, within the higher education, university campuses, there are security offices there that controls students and their movement, their gatherings, their conversations. So it is another level of securitization that it is happening within the campuses and university campuses. So that's how we need to understand it. And therefore, the creation of the culture of not trusting each other, fearing of each other, fearing of the report, and constantly the principal of the schools or within the university security forces, calling upon family members or the students, giving them warning. And within the higher education system, there is a this brutal system of storing students, which means yeah. marking them, giving them a warning by putting a mark on their files. Therefore, this has implications for access to jobs, for employment, opportunities for even accessing grants and awards and and a scholarship. So it has a huge lifespan implications, what is happening within the education system and the resistance and the opposition of uh, students. But on the other hand, Iranian teachers have long been advocating for their rights to organize for better working conditions, for free quality public education for all, supporting the protest movement and being very, very outspoken, and also calling for strikes. Even though independent labor unions are banned in Iran, teachers at great risk to their lives have been, as I said, one of the most radical and outspoken groups or associations in Iran What can you tell us about their role in the recent protests and their ability to mobilize across the country? We have seen it again and again after the chemical attacks in schools. They have always been very present. This is another outcome of this recent uh, uprising because teachers and other workers' unions and syndicates of workers, even if you look at the last 10 years, they have always been episodes of their grievances around the pension, around the working conditions, around work-related demands that they had. I think that the level of politicization of these demands that we see is very unique, and it is related to the opening, uh, political opening that has happened in, in the last few months, and that is very important. I think that the students' uprising the last few months really pushed uh, teachers to join them. I would say that the recent few weeks, the way that teachers came out and they have also introduced a sort of a Bill of Rights for educational system, these are all amazing and very important steps forward. But it doesn't mean that teachers have not been attacked or are not fearful of the consequences of their act. But I think that they have been inspired by the students' movement and their students in in their classes, that even a young teacher that encouraged the students 
to be happy in, in a classroom and sing a pop song was punished. They have their own grievances against after 1979 the revolution the government closed all private schools for nearly a decade and then we saw an increasing trend in privatization um according to the world bank between 1998 to 2017 iran had the highest trend in privatization of the education and this is also part of what these teachers and this association is demanding it's quality public education for all and because of the dire economic situation they have to make ends meet so these different demands and grievances are just coalescing around this women life freedom protest movement right now oh absolutely this privatization of the educational system again it's a regional problem regional part of a new liberal capitalist project that it is happening in in the region therefore salaries doesn't match the inflation devaluation of currency and the high cost of living other expenses that it is happening including that you may recall that the another major protest was related to hiking of the fuel prices so overall educational sector is not a well paid job and the pension is also limited so yes there are economic demands and the working conditions and also the end to this privatization quality of education so that teachers can have input in the pedagogy and in the practice in in the classroom in the creation and the writing of textbooks so there is a lot that it is going on and in fact i want to say that educational system should be seen as a political space and i think that there is a limited understanding of education education is is beyond the classroom and the teaching of a, a text it is transformation of life human being understanding mode of thinking creation of a community creation of the relationship that it is based on caring and enriching each other's life and not competition and creation of the hierarchical relations so there is a lot to be done in the sphere of education in iran and i think that again this is an outcome an achievement of this movement to open up these type of conversations that need to happen in the context of the future of iran you recently have talked about what an equitable and just education system in iran should look like given the multiplicity of languages ethnicities and nationalities in iran um what are the problems in the current model of education that is homogenizing and is oblivious to the issue of native languages and how can this issue be addressed in a pluralistic education system this is again a, another very important area that important work and conversation is happening and transformation and revamping of educational system in iran which it's called center oriented which means then urban based as well as monolingual based on persian or farsi that is the language of the education so acknowledging the nationalities and the rights of the nationalities to mother tongue education and the cultural orientation of the nationalities to be represented in the educational system 
is very important for bringing up, for enriching the life of the students of national minorities, to make them a better citizen, a fuller citizen, a a citizen that is really embedded within the culture and the language. And I think with that, it has the implications for improving the educational sector in different regions of the world by better schooling, better facilities, training teachers, you know, training, teacher training programs in Iran needs to be also changed in order to represent and also equip teachers with this new and transformative mode of learning and teaching. That's what needs to happen. I mean, the mother tongue education, better facilities and access to education in remote areas, in deprived regions of the country. And mostly these are our, the provinces that are borders with like the Sistan and Baluchistan or the Arab region of the south and then the Kurdish northwestern part of the country. They need to economically being developed They need resources and they need to have free and full access to language training and uh, language learning. Mother tongue education is very important. Also, unfortunately, the neoliberal model has become Iran's dominant organizing framework, and that also has influenced education in many ways, including the trends in privatization and Right now, what we are hearing about the wholesale auctioning and selling of public assets in Iran, including schools. Absolutely. The one thing that it is important for your listeners to understand is is that the Islamic regime is part of and contributing to the capitalist imperialist powers and dynamics is involved and it is part of this the logic of this capitalist imperialist relations which privatization and neoliberalism or contemporary characteristics of it it has its fundamentalist ideological viewpoint but that doesn't mean that it's not part of that this global logic of it and in fact i think that it is that relationship and it's understanding that that then we understand what is the location what is the the position of this islamic regime in in the global context and all the debates that we are hearing right now around what is the nature of this islamic state is related to that that uh, most often Iran is is not being seen as part of this global logic and therefore anything related to education or services, social benefits, pensions for close to 90 million population is entangled with all these political, economic, strategic relations that Iran is integrated in. Shahzad Mujab is a professor of adult education and community development and women and gender studies at the University of Toronto. Her most recent books are Marxism and Migration, Women of Kurdistan, a Historical and Bibliographical Study, and Revolutionary Learning, Marxism, Feminism, and Knowledge. 
During the interview, we spoke about prominent activist and journalist Sepide Golian, who was released from prison after spending over four years behind bars following a conviction related to her reporting on a strike movement in 2018. It is reported that Iranian security forces rearrested her after she walked free from jail, chanting slogans against Supreme Leader Ayatollah Khamenei, and she was taken back to Evin prison. That's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. You can find us on Twitter at Vomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at vominaradio at gmail.com. Please join us next week for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, and thank you for listening.